0: Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Briggs. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix, CD. The command team of Colonel Taillon and Chief Warrant Officer Trainer really developed me into
1: a leadership style that was effective.
0: Welcome back to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Briggs. We're going to continue on with our interview with Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix Well, let's move along here. We've got a couple more questions left to get to. Uh, who was your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? And I know your career is, is storied and has a few, so I'm expecting that we're going to hear some great things.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So first of all, my first influence
0: was when I was a master corporal,
1: the first people that really influenced me. And it was, once again, we're going to stick with the theme of command teams. The command team of Lieutenant Colonel J.P. Tyon and Chief Warrant Officer Mike Trainer. That command team of Colonel tile and Chief Warrant Officer Trainer were the first CO and RSM command team that actually influenced me. I'm not trying to say anything about the command of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jerry Chausen or Chief Warrant Officer Mike Prattley, who I respect deeply. It's just Chief Warrant Officer Trainer and Tyone are the ones who began to influence me. When I started becoming a Master Corporal, it would be easy for me to say that I was on the road to becoming a tyrant, to leading through fear and intimidation and some of the negative attributes of leadership. Still accomplishing the job, just accomplishing it with perhaps humiliation instead of support belittling rather than encouragement, those kind of tactics. And the command team of Colonel Tyone and Chief officer Trainer, they were the first to do professional development sessions. And I think you might've been at some of them where you do critical analysis of leadership problems and you'd have to present in front of the group. They were the first people that actually called you to task based on your behavior. And what were you modeling? What type of leadership style were you attempting to use in a given situation? And I really think those lessons really sunk in. One of the instances, I mean, this is very minor, but whatever, I was on duty in the orderly room and what the standard was at the time that if you were the duty Sergeant or the duty corporal, you were expected to be in your service dress. So you weren't allowed to wear combats for that parade night. You had to be turned out properly. You'd be inspected by the RSM. And I was in the orderly room. And I picked up the nasty, disgusting habit of chewing tobacco at the time. And I had a big wad of chew in my mouth. And I was the super keen master corporal who knew everything. And Colonel Tyone came in the orderly room. And he said, don't you dare spit that anywhere in here. And what I was planning to do was spit it in the garbage can. And he said, don't you spit that anywhere in this building at all. And I'm like, well, sir, it's chewing tobacco. You're supposed to spit it. He's like, if you spit that anywhere in this building, I will charge you myself. And I'm like, wow, well... Who's this guy telling me I can or can't spit where I want and what I want? And, you know, that know-it-all master corporal that we tend to run into every once in a while. And that kind of stuck with me, that a master corporal would think that he was in a position to question the lawful orders of the commanding officer in how the unit lines were to be respected. Anyhow, I took a lesson from that after I did a little bit of self-reflection and before I got myself into more trouble because I got myself in enough trouble without having to disobey the lawful command of a lieutenant colonel with witnesses. But anyhow, Chief Warrant Officer Trainer, something else that he brought was that sense of mess culture. And I don't know if that still exists, the pride of the mess and, and what it means to be a member of the sergeants and warrant officers' mess. The whole point of what I'm trying to say is the command team of Colonel Tayo and Chief One Officer Trainer really developed me into a leadership style that was effective. And perhaps that's where I need to conclude on that. Then there was Master Warrant Officer Don Cruikshank of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, who was posted to the Toronto Scottish as a senior staff. And his appointment within the regiment was QMSI. And there's a couple of debates on what QMSI stands for Quartermaster Senior Instructor, Quartermaster Sergeant Instructor. Anyhow, M.W. Cruikshank, he joined the Queen's Own Rifles when they were a regular force battalion. And he served in the days when his leaders, his instructors, his leadership were all Korean War veterans. He served in the days when if you were on a two-week long exercise and you took your helmet off to wipe your brow, you would be on charge the next morning. fine march next guilty bastard in that was the life he learned and lived by when he was living the life of a young private in platoon not platoon the movie but in the platoon of the queen's own rifles he would be formed up and then they'd be doing whatever job they'd be doing and then whoever the leader was would say okay everybody who wants to go for a smoke break you got five minutes everyone else we're doing push-ups being a smart private Don Cruikshank decided to take up smoking now, he came to us at approximately the same time as the command team that I spoke of, Lieutenant Colonel Tayo and Chief Warrant Officer Mike Trainer, wearing the cap badge of the PPCLI because the Queen's Zone had returned to their historical origins of being a reserve unit after being a regular force battalion. He became a member of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and he came into the Toronto Scottish, and, and he was a really good, valued mentor. And one of the skill sets that he brought to us was his weapons skills— and he was a marksman he was competed for the queen's medal in shooting he brought a whole new standard of instruction a whole new standard of rifle coach instruction a whole new standard of mentoring and developing subordinates that just impressed the hell out of me. And some of those lessons I used today, I was on the range last weekend to shoot my annual qualification on the C7 rifle. And I distinctly remember staring at my arm because I had my cadpat uniform on. And that was one of the lessons that he taught us was when you're idle on the range and you're waiting for the next relay, stare at something green. Because when you stare at something green and your target pops up, it will create a contrast within your eye, and the details of the target will stand out more vividly. And and just little tips and tricks like that. When he was our coach on our rifle team, he would have us do uh, shooter logs, and you had to log every shot. Every trigger pull had to be logged. What were the wind conditions? What were the sliding conditions that day? Was it raining? What was the ground like? And all these little things. And I listen to instructors now teaching our acronym, Habit, Holding, Aiming, Breathing, Instinctive Position, and Trigger Manipulation. And I get that they understand the acronym, and they understand what the words mean, but I question whether or not they truly understand the complexity of what they're trying to teach. And someone like MWO Don Crookshank, Crankershanker, would be able to not only say those words, but give you a meaning of what those words meant beyond the fancy little acronym. And he also had a little bit of a comedic leadership style. If you messed up, he'd say things like, I'll rip your lips off and things of that nature. And and just, he would never rip your lips off, but you certainly did envision what that would look like and what that would feel like when he would do it. And you certainly didn't want to screw up. And another influence, approximately the same time range, was Major David McDonald, who I was partnered up at the platoon level and at the company level as a command team partner. One of the things that David McDonald did for me was he really opened my eyes as to the relationship between officers and NCM, especially sergeants and warrant officers. The way that I was developing in my leadership style and model that I was following was truly an us versus them sort of situation where we had our mess. It was a sergeant's mess and no officers are allowed and the officers are all screwed up and they're messed up all the time and only sergeants and warrant officers know anything. One of the arguments that I put forward was, well, look at the rank structure. The NCM rank structure ends at the regimental level where the officer rank structure ends at the army or CF level. So clearly officers are less dedicated and loyal to the regiment because of their goals. And he turned to me and he said, do you really think that I'm going to be a general? And I just sat there and at him going, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> And he called my argument. Uh, We had a very healthy discussion. And when I say healthy, I'm not saying that sarcastically. It was very healthy and very productive. And he really opened my eyes that, no, it's not an us versus them. We're on the same team. We're working towards the same objective. We have different roles to play within that construct. And yes, there is an NCM Corps, there is uh, the Sergeants and Warrant Officers, and there are the Officer Corps, and there's Junior Officers and, and Senior Officers, Subalterns, and all the all the different divisions within the officer ranks. But if you have that animosity or that friction between your, your Sergeants and Warrant Officers and your Officer Corps, there's absolutely nothing you can achieve. You can't do anything. You stifle. All you do is you spin your wheels. But when you have that understanding of the complexity of the officer and NCM relationship. You can achieve anything. There's nothing that can stand in your way. I can almost guarantee that if I had not had that discussion with David McDonald and and if he had not taken the time to wake up the hamster that was asleep at the wheel in my head and uh, make that light come on, I certainly would not be the brigade sergeant major had I not had that chat with Dave McDonald. Do hold that in high regard that it was a 20-minute talk, but I'll never forget it.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk, and specifically about those two, the last two individuals that influenced your career, as you would say, Don, because he definitely had certain things in certain ways and certain visions of what he did. And I remember a specific opportunity where you ta- allude to his his humorous way of dealing with situations where you and him and myself were driving in a vehicle. <laughs> Poor, unfortunate. Uh, and I was actually driving yeah. at the wheel, and Don was in the passenger seat, and you were in the rear. We happened to be escorting some significant cargo, and we ended up hitting a, a dog on the road. Yeah, He had used his humor to get us through the process, but it definitely nonetheless. And then when I hear you talk about Dave, and I, I know also know Dave, and I can see how that conversation would have happened and how it would have influenced you, and then skip forward to actually describing it right now, you use terms and things that you were influenced by both of them because I can hear specific words like things that Don Cruikshank would say, like the light coming on, <laughs> or you know, alluding to the sound of, of bells going off like <laughs> bing and whatnot. So I definitely can see how those two people influenced your career for sure.
1: And then on to memorable characters. I've encountered more memorable characters than I can even imagine. But if I was to isolate it and narrow it down, uh, Warn officer Malcolm Dawson. Now, Warrant Officer Malcolm Dawson has the unconfirmed record of being the longest serving warrant officer in the Commonwealth. Now, how could we ever verify that officially? I have no idea. But he quickly rose to the rank of warrant officer. He joined kind of after World War II. I don't have his exact enrollment date, but essentially his instructors were World War II veterans. That's the time frame that he's in. He struggled as well. He 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 struggled with literacy although he was a whip with numbers. He could do numbers in his head like crazy, but literacy skills he he struggled a lot with. He joined the army with wool blankets, Lee-Enfields, Bren guns, and the Vickers machine gun. He left the army with C7s, C9 light machine guns, and Gore-Tex. I mean, that's that's what he spanned. So he transitioned from the Lee-Enfield to the FN, and then from the FN to the C7. When we were issued the c 9 He stripped and assembled that thing in two seconds because to him, it was identical to the Bren gun, which he initially learned on. He was my first company sergeant major, and he had a comedic style that was just so bizarre, it it went all the way past bizarre back into funny again. He would talk about his surgical implants and remark at how they enhanced his performance, and that's all I'm going to say about that. When he died last year, people named him on Facebook they call them Mr. Toronto Scottish which is kind of inaccurate because Mr. Toronto Scottish is RSM Teddy Baker and that's well established and Malcolm Dawson would be quite upset if somebody called him Mr. Toronto Scottish because he served with wo one Teddy Baker back in the day and he wouldn't accept that name so there, there must be some other moniker we could give him because he served with with the Toronto Scottish and he worked within the company when I joined in 1988, but he was my first company sergeant major. When he was trying to establish himself in his life and find a career, he was struggling to find a job. And what ended up happening was he was about to be homeless. And then Colonel Hugh Stewart, a former commanding officer of the Toronto Scottish, he worked at the bank. He essentially got him a job as a mail courier. He would simply go around the bank greeting people and moving paper from one desk to another. And that was his full-time job that kept him from being homeless, that kept him with a roof over his head and, and food on the table. Thank goodness for Colonel Stewart and his initiative to care for Malcolm Dawson and make sure that he was looked after in his time of need. And And that's something that still is applicable today because we have soldiers who have rough spots and end up in a time of need. And it's so easy to say, oh, I don't know what to do. That's not my problem. People like Colonel Stewart cared enough to make sure that his soldier, his His Malcolm Dawson had a roof over his head and was able to put food on his table and raise his family. Just an incredible character. Just to summarize, the the Toronto Scottish named the Regimental Stores after Malcolm. That's where he finished his time with the Toronto Scottish. Was in the Regimental Stores before his health started to fail. That was good old Malcolm.
0: Definitely Mal was one of those guys that he's got a part of anybody who is in the Toronto Scottish up to... Just before his death. If you were in the Toronto Scottish, you know Malcolm Dawson, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, it looks like we're coming up onto our final question here. What was the greatest challenge you had to overcome? Now, believe it or not, this is one that I had to struggle with a little bit. I do have some
1: notes, and I'm still trying to figure out which one is my real struggle. One of the things I've always struggled with was, um, especially as a leader, was let me start at the beginning here. So in 1988, I joined the infantry. And i joined the infantry the first year that women were allowed to join the infantry during my career i got no special favors no advanced promotions i got all the way through the ranks to the rank of chief warrant officer i held two appointments as an rsm one of those overseas and i have a third appointment as brigade sergeant major and right now there are no women chief warrant officers in the infantry and the thing that i struggle with is I mean, what is it that is preventing my female peers from achieving that goal? Is it family? Is it raising children? What is it that I can do to get a better representation of women within the infantry branch? And without being condescending and without extending that special favor, and one of the things that I caution people with is mistaking mentoring with favoritism. That can be a real stumbling block that someone would withhold mentoring to whether it's a female soldier or a male soldier, doesn't matter, but they would withhold mentoring because it would be perceived as favoritism. And that's another challenge as well. It would be a great achievement to see, especially since I've been there from day one, to have some female peers. And don't get me wrong, there have been female RSMs, like in the service battalion. There was Beverly Yates in the Signals Regiment, there was April White, and I believe she had a predecessor before her who held the appointment. But I'm talking about the infantry, and we have people like Margaret Star Wars and Sergeant Ireland out in the Lincoln and Welland who who I hope will develop into exceptional regimental sergeant majors and chief warrant officers. It's more of something that we're still waiting to see the fruit of that seed planted in 1988. Another challenge that I'm still working on is learning to work with my disability, And people will look at me and they'll say, you're not disabled. What's the matter with you? And you you try and compare yourself with people like Jody Middick, who's missing two legs. And you go, no, you're not disabled. But I do have a disability and you just can't see it. It's interesting that I play with an audio medium and I'm hearing impaired. It's an interesting struggle because I enter into new personal relationships. For example, I entered into the Use of Force office at York Regional Police. And one of the guys in the office, after he found out that I... I have hearing damage and it's work-related hearing damage on the job with the military. I have that hearing damage and he goes, you know, I always thought you were a jerk. (laughs) I didn't realize you couldn't hear me. And it's things like that that really are stunning because I don't perceive that, that that's the way I'm being looked at simply by not being able to hear what someone says. I do have kick-ass hearing aids they're five thousand dollars you can't even see them they're invisible but sometimes the batteries only last 10 minutes so i'll set up to go somewhere i'll set up to go watch a movie or something and then halfway through the movie my battery will cut out so i have the warning chime going off in one ear because the right battery has died on me even as we sit right now the ringing in my ears is fierce. It's at an exceptional level, that ringing, that consistent ringing. And one thing that I can say that's helped me with this challenge is the Royal Canadian Legion. When I applied for veterans benefits to be compensated for my hearing loss, and this is this is a result of a range incident where we were ordered not to wear hearing protection. I was assigned the C9 light machine gun for that range. And the notion was well, first of all, they forgot to bring hearing protection, so let's put that right out there, right off the bat. Hearing protection was forgotten back at home, and instead of cancelling the range and turning in the ammo, or whipping out a credit card and going to home hardware and buying hearing protection for everyone, they said press on, and the logic was, since the C7 family of rifles was new, 556 is only .003 larger than a twenty two and you don't need hearing protection to fire twenty-twos. We went for a full day practice in 1990 firing with no hearing protection and my ears have been ringing every single day consistently since that day yeah this this is something that 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 i have been struggling with and it isn't a work-related injury it is documented the royal canadian legion was the hero of the story because i was applying for my veterans benefits and i was being denied and turned away and and i was going through all the steps that you have to go through to receive your veterans benefits and then finally someone said have you been to the Legion? I said, well, I'm not a member of the Legion. Said, it doesn't matter. You don't even have to be a member of the Legion, although I probably should now. I went in to see the Legion lawyer and within four months after having been through the Veterans Affairs process for over four years, after four months, the Legion lawyer had my Veterans claim solved, resolved, put away and done, closed. It was done.
0: It definitely seems like a fairly significant challenge. It's one that you are 100% correct in in that people not understanding the concept of audio exclusion as it pertains to a stressful situation is not the same at all with regards to training situations and scenarios where hearing protection is an absolute must and that in certain situations regard with depending upon what the the levels or the db levels are that sometimes you may even have to double plug to ensure that you have prolonged hearing for the remainder of your lifetime because a lot of people don't necessarily understand that hearing isn't one of those things that we can fix we can try to give you implants or we can try to give you as you have hearing aids but you can't fix an inner ear it's one of those things that once it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. It seems like you've had a few uh, fairly significant challenges and that you seem to have come through them uh, quite handily and it's served you well into the, put you into the position where you are as, as the chief right now in the brigade that you work in. Yeah. I've been pretty lucky. I have to say it. Definitely. It seems like we've come to the end of the interview. Is there any other projects that you're currently working on right now, Mike?
1: Yeah, actually we're working on the rededication of Coronation Park in Toronto. Essentially, Coronation Park sits directly south of Fort York Armory. It's at the foot of Strawn Avenue and the Lakeshore. It's in the area of Bathurst and Lakeshore in Toronto. And on the 28th of September, we're going to hold a rededication ceremony in Coronation Park. This rededication is something that I'm looking forward to.
0: It's definitely a project that's well-founded and well worth need to look at some of these and take these opportunities like the Coronation Park project. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Well, we're we're definitely here at the end, Mike. Is there anything else you'd like to mention or anything else you'd like to say? So
1: Greg, I'm just curious, when is this episode supposed to come out?
0: Well, this episode is scheduled to come out April 1st, 2014. Oh,
1: so you mean April Fool's Day?
0: Yep, definitely. April Fool's Day.
1: It's time to let the audience off the hook, and what I want to do is I want to thank Greg Briggs for stepping in on my April Fool's prank episode of the Canadian Military History Podcast and taking over the reins as the host. I think he did an admirable job. So thank you, Greg, for stepping in and being the host of the show and helping me with a little prank on the audience, and hopefully everyone appreciates my little twist I want to thank you for taking the time to be the host of the show. Normally, I thank people for being the guest of the show, but we're running into the clock at three
0: hours and four minutes, so this might be a triple episode. (laughs) Definitely. I, I appreciate and thank you very much for the opportunity, my friend. Yeah, It's just another opportunity for me to learn some more about you. We've known each other a long time, and I learned some things about you today that I hadn't known, and I appreciate that. You bet. We shall chat with you later. Take care, Greg. Okay, bye.
1: Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca. Or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the web page. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. N-Tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix production.